What can be finer for a wealthy man than to win good fame among men? Even for Atreus's sons that endures, while the countless treasures won when Priamos's great house was sacked lie hidden somewhere in the mist from which there is no return. These lines were written by the poet Theocritus more than 2,000 years ago about Menelaus and Agamemnon, kings and brothers who led the Greeks during the mythical Trojan War around 1200 BC. And they did earn fame among men. Their names are still remembered thousands of years later through the enduring works of the ancient Greek writers. Eighteen seventy-six, Greece. Heinrich Schliemann, another man seeking good fame among men, stands on a mountaintop at the ruins of the Bronze Age city and mythical home of Agamemnon, Mycenae. He looks up at the famous Lion Gate one of the first objects uncovered by the Greek Archaeological Society when they started excavating here 30 years earlier. The imposing entrance to the Mycenaean citadel is built from massive stones and crowned in the center of its arch by a carving of two lionesses facing each other. It is ancient and beautiful, but Schliemann knows that there are greater treasures to be discovered here. He allows himself a small smile as he passes through the gate. Guided by the writings of 2nd century traveler Pausanias, he believes that the grave of Agamemnon is here, and he expects to find it. After all, he is the man who discovered the lost city of Troy itself. A few months later, a secretary delivers a telegram to King George of Greece. It's from Schliemann. The king takes the delivery eagerly, but he's wary of Schliemann. The allegations surrounding his astonishing discovery of Troy are concerning, but nonetheless he has high hopes for this excavation and what it could reveal about his country's history. He unfolds the telegram, and his pulse begins to race as he reads this single line of type. I have gazed upon the face of Agamemnon. Welcome to Throughlines. On this show, we are going to talk about old things, artifacts and even treasures made by people who came before us. This season, we'll focus on items found in burial sites around the world. On this episode, we will look at the Mask of Agamemnon, a golden funeral mask that lay buried for thousands of years on the face of the person it was made to honor within the crumbling citadel of ancient Mycenae. As fascinating as it is, the mask is merely our entry point into a larger story, one that spans many different periods of history and is still being written today. The discovery of the mask brings us into contact with larger questions about legacy, truth, and the historicity of mythical events. It also brings us into contact with two strong personalities who show us how life can, in fact, imitate art. The mask itself, although only a part of that larger story, is surrounded by myth-making, legend, and controversy. In fact, part of the story I told you at the beginning isn't true. It's the Hollywood version. Schliemann's actual telegram was much less pithy and quotable. It actually read, quote, With great joy I announce to your majesty that I have discovered the tombs which the tradition proclaimed by Pausanias indicates to be the graves of Agamemnon, Cassandra, Eurymedon, and their companions. 
all slain at a banquet by Clytemnestra and her lover Aegisthus. End quote. You can see why I gave you the Hollywood version, though, right? It's almost made to be tweeted or dropped into a film trailer. To further complicate matters, some say that the Hollywood version of the quote was sent in a telegram, but to a newspaper, not to the king. And it has also been said that Schliemann himself never actually said that the mask was that of Agamemnon. In fact, it almost certainly is not the face of Agamemnon, and some have suggested that it is not even a genuine artifact from the Bronze Age. We're getting ahead of ourselves, though. Let's take a step back and get some background, and then we'll look at the mask itself. You probably have some concept of Greek mythology. Stories from ancient Greece centering around the gods and goddesses of Olympus, monsters, and the demigod heroes who did battle with them. Greek mythology has inspired generations of art, from literature and plays, to paintings and sculpture, prog rock albums, and Hollywood films. Of all of these stories, the Trojan War is perhaps the most enduring and impactful. The story of Troy appears across many works of the ancient Greeks, but it is most notably described by Homer in his famous works The Iliad and The Odyssey. The siege of Troy by the Greeks serves as the culminating event of Greek mythology, the final epic showdown where the gods themselves choose sides and join in the battle. The Trojan War was a monumental event, which would spawn its own myths as time marched on. For instance, the ancient Romans went to great pains to establish themselves as the descendants of Aeneas, the leader of a group of Trojan survivors who were spared and favored by the gods. For all of this importance and impact, it is still uncertain whether anything like the ten-year war described by the ancient Greeks actually took place or if it is purely legend. One of the key players in the story of the Trojan War is Agamemnon, the namesake of the mask we will be looking at today. He was a powerful king and led the Greeks during the Trojan War. His city, Mycenae, was wealthy and powerful, described by Homer as, quote, Mycenae, rich in gold. The real city of Mycenae was believed to have been built around 1600 BC by the Greek-speaking people known as the Achaeans. Tradition has it that the downfall of Mycenaean civilization was tied to the end of the Trojan War around 1200 BC. The fallout of the Trojan War, along with several other factors, led to the decline and finally the end of this great civilization around 1100 BC. Before its fall, Mycenae and the Achaeans grew in wealth and influence, sitting in an area convenient for trade with Europe, the Near East, Asia Minor, and North Africa. The Mask of Agamemnon was found at a site within the Mycenaean citadel known as Grave Circle A. There are six shaft graves located there, although only five of them were found and excavated by Schliemann. Within the graves were a total of 19 bodies, men, women, and a few children. They were buried with many rich grave goods, including jewelry, drinking vessels, boxes, and bronze swords and daggers inlaid with gold. Speaking of gold, there was a lot of it in the graves. Approximately 30 pounds in total was removed from the site. From this treasure, the Mask of Agamemnon is the most famous piece, but it is actually only one of five masks found laid upon the faces of the buried. Death masks have a long history, recorded as far back as the time of Alexander the Great, and they have been found in many cultures throughout the world, from ancient Egypt to Florence during the Renaissance. 
Death masks were usually cast directly from the face of the deceased and were commonly used as references for artists so that they could create sculptures or portraits. The death masks found in Mycenae are part of a subset usually called funeral masks. Rather than helping the living remember the dead, funeral masks were buried with the dead as part of burial customs. The use of gold in the Mycenaean funeral masks and the grave goods, along with their position inside the citadel walls, tell us that these people were part of the wealthy elite, possibly even royalty. Historians say that each of the funeral masks was made from a single sheet of gold, hammered very thin, and then hammered further against a wooden mold to produce the features. Fine detail would have been added later with a chisel. Of the five masks found in Grave Circle A, the one that we know as the Mask of Agamemnon is the most well-preserved and the most striking to look at. While the other masks have large pieces missing or look misshapen and crinkly, and yes, crinkly is an official archaeological term, the Mask of Agamemnon has largely retained its shape and has only a small piece missing from the very top, close to the hairline. It depicts a man with an angular face, large, closed eyes, and a long, thin nose. The key feature of the mask, however, is that it is the only one of the five with a beard. In addition, the ears have been cut out from the rest of the mask so that they stand out separately, another detail not found on any of the others. The masks and the other gold items shine brilliantly today, but that is a result of the restoration that they received. An Irish scholar named J.P. Mahaffey was able to see the items found at Grave Circle A early after their discovery and make notes on their appearance. He noted that the gold items had experienced corrosion, which gave them a unique and beautiful appearance. He described this as a quote, red bloom, and called it exquisite. He laments after a second visit that the corrosion had been polished away, and honestly, I can see what he means. While they are beautiful as they appear today, they achieved the so-called red bloom by lying in the ground for over 3,000 years on the face of an honored person, and it seems a shame that they will never be seen in that state again. The five burial masks, as well as the other objects found in Grave Circle A, are on display in the National Museum of Antiquities in Greece, and the Mask of Agamemnon now stands front and center, welcoming visitors into the collection of Mycenaean antiquities. Despite this pride of place and awe-inspiring name, however, the mask is almost certainly not the funeral mask of the Trojan War hero Agamemnon, if in fact he even existed. Historians and researchers today agree that the burials in Grave Circle A date from sometime in the 16th century BC, about 300 years before the Trojan War took place, if it did take place. How then did it come to be associated with these legends, and why have some suggested it is a forgery? Much of the myth-making and controversy around the Mask of Agamemnon stems from the man who found it, Heinrich Schliemann. Heinrich Schliemann is a strange historical personality. On one hand, he is a monumental figure in the history of archaeology, and on the other, he is seen by some as a selfishly ambitious, glory-seeking fraudster. He has been called the father of Homeric archaeology, and after his discovery of Troy, he declared, quote, I have opened up a new world of archaeology. End quote. And he had. David Turner, writing in the Journal of Archaeology, says that Schliemann was, quote, one of the first to understand the chronological importance of pottery and of mundane objects that had until this time been of little or no interest to the antiquarian, end quote. But 
In modern times, his methods have been called into question, and he has been accused of destroying countless priceless artifacts and the chance to study them in his dogged, single-minded search for archaeological evidence related to Homer and his writings. One particularly cynical writer said that Schliemann did a better job of destroying Troy than the ancient Greeks did. But who was he, and how did he find himself on that mountaintop in 1876? Schliemann was born in 1822 in Germany, the son of a poor pastor. He was extremely intelligent and very driven. By the end of his life, he spoke 14 languages fluently. He also possessed an instinct for business, building a career as an international merchant. As you might expect from such a divisive figure, his career held some shady moments. He fled California during the gold rush on the heels of some trouble and made a considerable amount of money selling arms during the Crimean War. Already you have the makings of a good period drama. By the age of 36, he had amassed a multi-million dollar fortune over a successful career and was able to drastically reduce his business commitments, living the life of a gentleman in Russia. It was during this time of relative calm in the 1850s that Schliemann's reading and study of language intensified, and he began to develop an interest in Greek mythology and Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. It seems that a life of gentlemanly leisure grated on Schliemann, and those interests developed into a full-blown obsession. He became convinced that Homer's writings were not complete fiction, but had some grounding in historical truth. It was only a matter of time before he would turn his vast personal wealth and forceful personality to proving it. Schliemann began preparing for a trip to Greece. David Turner says that he, quote, pestered every Greek in St. Petersburg for lessons, books, and conversation practice, end quote. He began to travel extensively, and by 1866, his attention was fully off of business and onto archaeology. In late 1868, he found himself at the site of Hisarlik in Turkey, part of the Ottoman Empire at the time. It was here that he would unearth the site of the historical city of Troy. After that monumental discovery, Mycenae was the next logical step. Perhaps the most relevant aspect of Schliemann's personality for our look at the Mask of Agamemnon is that he was a bit of a raconteur, and he seemed to self-mythologize out of habit. William Calder, a professor of classics and an expert on Schliemann, says, quote, I have learned to doubt everything Schliemann said unless there is independent confirmation, end quote. Professor Calder lists several things from Schliemann's autobiographical writings as untrue. A White House meeting with President Millard Fillmore, discovering a bust of Cleopatra in Alexandria, Egypt. He actually purchased it from an antiques dealer. Heroism during the Great San Francisco Fire, which was mostly copied from a newspaper, and gaining his American citizenship on July 4th, 1850. He did gain his American citizenship, but not on the 4th of July. I think you get the idea. If possible, Schliemann was always going to give you the Hollywood version of the story, but does that extend to his archeological work? Some think so, and there may be good reason for that. Let's start with his excavation of Troy. One of the most famous recoveries from the site is the so-called Treasure of Priam, Priam being the king of Troy during the Trojan War. The treasure was an astonishing hall, almost 9,000 gold rings, cups, vases, and goblets of gold, silver, bronze, and electrum, a mixture of gold and silver. Bronze spearheads and daggers, many articles of jewelry, and two glorious golden diadems. 
And if this is the only time that you've heard that word used outside of Harry Potter, well, you're not the only one. Schliemann famously had his wife Sophia photographed wearing one of those diadems along with golden earrings and necklaces, a collection he named the Jewels of Helen because, of course. Take a minute and Google that photo if you can. It's really incredible. So what's the problem? Well, for starters, Schliemann smuggled those items out of Turkey without the knowledge of the Ottoman government. In fact, that photograph of Sophia was what alerted the Ottomans to his theft, resulting in him being banned from any further excavations. He would later report that he had sent the excavation crew home early so that he and Sophia could personally pull that treasure from the ground, carrying it away piece by piece, wrapped in her shawl. After being sued by the Ottoman government, Schliemann returned part of the treasure in exchange for being allowed back. Two more points about Priam's treasure. Today, most experts agree that while the items are most likely authentic, it is very doubtful that they came from a single buried treasure hoard on the site of Troy, and were most likely found scattered throughout the ruins, consolidated by Schliemann into a single magnificent treasure. As far as Schliemann excavating this treasure himself and smuggling it out in Sophia's shawl, he would later admit that this was untrue. Sophia was not even in Turkey at the time. I'm hoping you can see a pattern here and how it might sow doubts about Schliemann's integrity as he headed into his work at Mycenae a few years later. But what specifically is the case that the Mask of Agamemnon is not authentic? This idea stems largely from Professor Calder, the Schliemann expert I mentioned earlier. In support of his idea of doubting everything Schliemann said, he voiced long-standing doubts to the archaeological community for years, and in the Journal of Archaeology in 1999, he submitted those concerns in a list of nine points. Now, I'm going to yada yada over a lot of detail, but here's the high points. Schliemann had previously attempted to pass off things he bought as things he had discovered himself. Calder states that many of Schliemann's contemporaries believed that he had salted excavation sites, meaning hiding items there ahead of time so that he could then find them. He finds it suspicious that Schliemann was the first to discover the richest collections of treasure at both Troy and Mycenae, and further mentions the peculiar detail that both excavations were closed very shortly after the greatest treasures were discovered. He also says that once the Ottomans found out he had absconded with the treasure of Priam, Schliemann, quote, explored the possibilities, end quote, of having fakes made to send back to them. Perhaps the most convincing bits of evidence that Calder points out are the stylistic differences between the so-called Mask of Agamemnon and the other masks that were found. As we mentioned before, it is the only one to feature a beard and a mustache. Another odd detail is that the mustache is upturned at the end, and Schliemann commented that this must mean the ancient Greeks made use of some kind of pomade. Calder finds the idea of the ancient Greeks using pomade in their beards to be particularly suspicious. Besides that, the appearance of the face itself is different from the others. The other masks are round, and the Mask of Agamemnon is not. I described it as angular earlier, and if you view photos of them side by side, the difference is clear. Schliemann himself commented on the thin Hellenistic nose, Hellenistic meaning it was in line with the ideas of classical Greek appearance at the time. Calder also finds it strange that in Schliemann's own writing, he comments on the quote, perfect state of preservation, end quote, of the mask, when even today it is somewhat damaged. He reads these things as Schliemann trying to get out ahead of objections that he knows will be coming, because in Calder's belief, Schliemann is trying to pass off a fake. Calder closes his arguments by stating that the National Museum in Greece has denied requests to test the mask, and that doing so could resolve the issues and silence, quote, annoying critics. 
Calder makes an interesting case, but he himself admits that it is circumstantial, and many experts are not convinced. Even David Trail, who supports his call for the museum to perform tests and reiterates the stylistic differences between the mask and the others, admits that none of these concerns serve as proof that the mask is fake. Katie Demakopoulou, formerly the director of the National Archaeological Museum in Athens, is particularly critical of the suggestion that the mask is a fake. In the opening lines of her response to Calder and Trail, she makes it clear that she has exactly zero time for the idea that the mask is not a genuine Bronze Age artifact. As far as the beard goes, she points out that the way the beard and the mustache hairs are rendered on the mask match the technique used for the mane and beard of a golden lion's head that was found in another of the graves at Mycenae. They resemble each other so closely, in fact, that some have even attributed these objects to the same artist. She also says that it was right for the museum to deny calls for the mask to be tested, since there is no sufficient reason to doubt that it is authentic in the first place. She says that any true call to doubt the mask's authenticity should be based on strong analysis of the archaeological data. She says that, quote, Since Calder is, by his own admission, unqualified to evaluate the archaeological evidence, it might be best to leave these serious matters in the hands of specialists, end quote. Ouch. I find her response pretty convincing, and it really drives home how circumstantial and opinion-based the doubts really are. To be fair, she does not address the peculiar upturned ends of the mustache that Calder points out. And if you're tired of hearing about the details of the beard and mustache hairs on an ancient golden artifact, I promise we're almost done talking about them. Kenneth LaPatton, from the Department of Art History at Boston University, points out the possibility of the mask being what he calls a pastiche, or a victim of over-restoration once it was discovered. He states that when discussing archaeology from the early 20th century and before, that, quote, mutually exclusive categories like genuine and false are often unhelpful and ultimately limiting, end quote. He points out that our current attitudes towards the preservation of ancient artifacts were not the norm in Schliemann's time. So while the idea of adding an upturned end to the mustache to make it match contemporary sensibilities would be a shocking idea to archaeologists today, in Schliemann's time, maybe not so much. In this third avenue of possibility, the mask is still a genuine artifact, but a victim of overzealous restoration. Finally, let's look at the seemingly strange timing of Schliemann closing down the excavations in Mycenae in such a short time after the mask of Agamemnon was discovered. In this case, there seems to be a perfectly reasonable explanation for that. Schliemann relied heavily on the writings of Homer for his excavations at the site of Troy, taking them as more of a guide than previous researchers had. For Mycenae, he was guided by the writings of a man named Pausanias, who was something of an ancient travel writer in the 2nd century AD. Pausanias wrote that when he visited Mycenae, he was told with some confidence by the people living there that in the old citadel there lay the remains of, quote, Agamemnon, Cassandra, Eurymedon, and their companions, end quote, as cited by Schliemann in his telegram to King George. It seems that he also specified that there were five ancient graves on the site. At the time the excavations were closed, Schliemann had found and excavated five graves. If he was taking the words of Pausanias as gospel, why would he bother to keep looking? There is one final factor that makes the case for the Mask of Agamemnon being a genuine artifact from Bronze Age Mycenae, and it's a big one. A person, in fact. 
His name was Panayotis Stamatakis, and he was the man appointed by the Greek government to keep an eye on Schliemann. Not much is known about Stamatakis outside of his archaeological work. He was probably born around the year 1840, and there are no known photographs of him. It is possible that he is the man with, quote, the serious expression which suits an intellectual, end quote, who appears in one panoramic photograph of the Mycenae excavation, but no one has been able to verify this for certain. Every reference that I can find describes him as honest and hardworking, dedicated to his work. The word conscientious appears more than once when describing him. Prior to his work at Mycenae, he traveled Greece on behalf of the Greek Archaeological Service, taking part in numerous excavations and visiting the homes of people in illegal possession of ancient Greek artifacts, and convincing them to give those back to the Archaeological Service. His years of work led to his appointment to oversee Schliemann's Mycenae excavation in 1876. During that time, he worked to document activities at the site and preserve as many artifacts as possible. He advocated for better pay and working conditions and for adequate staff to complete the work. Stamatakis was present shortly after the Mask of Agamemnon was discovered, and yes, he confirmed that it did have a beard, and he seemed to completely accept that it was a genuine Mycenaean artifact. Considering that Stamatakis had worked closely with ancient Greek artifacts for the Archaeological Society for a decade before his time at Mycenae, many experts find his word enough proof of authenticity. Stamatakis is more than just a footnote to this story, however. As you might imagine from the picture I've painted of him, he and Schliemann were at loggerheads almost from the beginning of the Mycenae excavation. In fact, their relationship was so bad that the photograph I mentioned earlier that possibly catches Stamatakis, the only reason that many experts think that's him is that when that photograph was reprinted in Schliemann's book about the excavation, that figure was removed. As part of his job, Stamatakis submitted regular reports to the Archaeological Society about the excavations, and they chronicle almost constant friction with Schliemann, leading to escalating tensions. Schliemann wanted to work as quickly as possible, providing many incentives to the workers to move faster. Stamatakis did his best to discourage this philosophy and encourage a more patient, thoughtful approach, with varying success. He also reported Schliemann's many violations of his agreements with the Archaeological Society. His most constant frustration with Schliemann was his complete disregard for any artifacts that he did not believe were related to Homeric Mycenae. Stamatakis says that Schliemann treated anything that was Roman or ancient Greek from a later period, quote, with disgust, end quote, and simply threw it away. He reported a few occasions where workers on the site were given orders by him to preserve certain items for study and were then told by Schliemann to throw them away. Stamatakis had to constantly stand his ground against derision and abuse and Schliemann's attempt to minimize his role in the work. Things got so tense that Stamatakis threatened his resignation on two occasions before the work was finished. After Schliemann departed, Stamatakis continued to manage the site, which he described as bombarded. He discovered an additional hoard of gold artifacts in the area, to the chagrin of Schliemann, who tried to claim credit for these additional items in his book about the excavation. Then, in November 1877, Stamatakis uncovered a sixth shaft grave located in Circle A that was not found by Schliemann. After this, Stamatakis undertook the transportation of all the items to Athens and took the lead on planning and staging their exhibition. Despite all of his work, Stamatakis' name was nowhere near as widely known as Schliemann's, certainly not outside of archaeological circles. Neither did he become wealthy like Schliemann. Despite his success, he remained a working man with a job to do 
not an international gentleman making headlines. Stomatakis died in 1885 after a long battle with malaria. At the time of his death, Schliemann called him, quote, a distinguished archaeologist, end quote. Stomatakis was buried in the first cemetery of Athens, his tomb paid for by the Archaeological Society. A few years later, however, the city authorities decided to remove his remains and grave marker because, quote, he had no descendants to look after them, end quote. The Archaeological Society protested this, but they were unsuccessful. I have to admit, this hit me unexpectedly hard. A man who dedicated his life and career to caring for the remains of people who died thousands of years earlier and to reclaiming priceless pieces of his country's history and cultural heritage has his tomb dismantled and his remains removed because he has no descendants to look after them? The irony is staggering. And it seems especially cruel when you consider that in that same cemetery, there stands a towering mausoleum modeled after the Temple of Nike at the Acropolis. Standing guard over the entrance to that mausoleum is a bust of its occupant, Heinrich Schliemann. Thankfully, Stamataki's story doesn't end there. I mentioned before that he submitted regular reports to the Archaeological Society, but he also kept extensive personal diaries that remained unexamined by the academic community for over a hundred years. As best as I can tell, they were not rediscovered until the late 1990s, and even then they were not used in any additional research until 2009. Upon examination, they provided a wealth of new information that helped to clarify many unanswered questions and ambiguities from the 1876 excavations. Most notably, Stamatakis included hand-drawn sketches of each grave, which included the positioning of the bodies and the grave goods found with them. He also included further details on their states of preservation that were not clear before. In addition to the valuable scholarly information, these diaries provide us with a glimpse of Stamatakis' personality. Many of the page headings in his diaries include a quotation from Homer or the Greek tragedies that relates to what was found. It seems that he was just as enamored with the myths of Troy as Schliemann. In this way, the two men are like opposite sides of the same coin, both intelligent and hardworking, both with the same passion but expressed in different ways. Opportunistic versus conscientious, hard-driving versus patient, results-driven versus detail-oriented. In a strange case of life imitating art, the careers of these two men who were so much alike and yet so different seem to parallel two of the major players in the story of the Trojan War. Schliemann is Agamemnon himself, proud, wealthy, and powerful. He seeks glory and succeeds in finding it. But as anyone who knows the story of Troy will tell you, shortly after returning home in victory, Agamemnon was murdered. And sure, Schliemann didn't meet his end at the point of knives wielded by his wife and her lover, but in the years after his death, his integrity and his methods have been attacked again and again and have suffered lasting damage. Stamataki's career follows another player that we haven't really mentioned yet, but one you've probably heard of. Odysseus. Odysseus did not seek glory at the walls of Troy. In fact, he tried his hardest to avoid sailing to war, but in the end, he could not avoid the call. He served and fought well, but then he was lost at sea for a decade before finally returning home. In the same way, Stamatakis did his job with diligence and then was largely forgotten until his diaries came to light over a hundred years later. Early on in my research, it became clear to me that this story was never really about the Mask of Agamemnon. Rather, the mask was merely the entry point into a story about legacy, 
immortality even. The Mask of Agamemnon is a shining golden link in a chain of attempts made by people to associate themselves with the legacy of the most famous and epic war in history. Besides the Mask of Agamemnon, the site of Mycenae is littered with allusions to Homer's Troy, the Cup of Nestor, the Tomb of Clytemnestra, the Treasury of Atreus. All of these things seek to connect the site to this legendary past, and all of them almost certainly have nothing to do with the figures they are named after, if those figures even existed. I think this was what really drove Schliemann to set out on his quest to prove the historicity of Homer's writings about the Trojan War. He was wealthy and successful, but history is full of wealthy and successful people, and who remembers them besides their families? The man who discovered the real Troy, however, would be remembered. And Schliemann is remembered, rightfully so, despite his shortcomings. And hopefully now, with the discovery and recognition of his diaries, Stamatakis will be remembered as well. As our time at Mycenae comes to an end, I want to return to the Mask of Agamemnon itself. The mask sits at the intersection of history and myth and serves as a nexus for many stories and questions. Before receiving its attention-grabbing name, the Mask of Agamemnon was given the much more ordinary and, frankly, boring designation of Item NM624. Another of the masks, exhibiting an especially round face, was given the designation NM623. Writing in Hesperia, the journal of the American School of Classical Studies at Athens, Oliver Dickinson describes a letter where Schliemann discusses the mask and mentions, quote, the dead man with the round face, end quote. Schliemann comments, quote, this one is very like the picture which my mind formed of Agamemnon long ago, end quote. Besides an echo of the apocryphal, I have gazed upon the face of Agamemnon line, this quote reveals another potential misconception around the mask. If you recall, the Mask of Agamemnon does not have a particularly round face, while the images of NM623 show a mask that is almost perfectly rounded, described by some as bulbous even. Dickinson theorizes that Schliemann was referring to NM623 as his mental picture of Agamemnon, but once the much more striking NM624 became associated with the ancient Greek hero, he went with it. It seems it's possible, then, that for all of this discussion, we have been gazing upon the wrong face. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Through Lines. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed researching and creating it. If you would like to see a full list of the sources that I use for this episode, you can find links in the show notes. If you would like to learn more about the historicity of Troy, the Our Fake History podcast did a three-episode series on that very topic and is full of a lot of interesting information. As a bonus, the second episode of that series is dedicated entirely to the life and exploits of Heinrich Schliemann. And lastly, if you find yourself in Athens, Greece, make sure to go to the National Archaeological Museum and take a look at the Mask of Agamemnon yourself. <laughs>